On today's show, the WGA and studios have reached a deal. We'll also talk about North Carolina, who just passed a massive expansion of school vouchers and education savings accounts. And then we're going to turn to three scandals and controversies that started in real life and have migrated to the internet where people have lots of opinions. The first is how to be anti-racist author Ibram Kendi and his recent woes. We'll then talk about accusations of sexual assault against Russell Brand. And then we'll turn to a viral video that's ignited a debate over the ethics of Karen takedowns. All of this and more on The Lost Debate, a show for political eclectics. Hello, everybody. I'm Ravi Gupta. And I'm Ricky Schlott. Ricky, we have a lot to talk about today. Let's start with some good news over the weekend. The WGA and the producers, the AMPT or TP, uh, have reached a tentative deal. Both sides have claimed victory, which is a good sign. And essentially, it looks like uh, the basics here are that there are wage increases, uh, something on the order between 5 and 6%. The details haven't been fully released yet. Some concessions on AI, protections against AI, uh, although the studios have kept certain rights to experiment. This is a three-year deal, uh, and the writers also got certain levels of minimum staffing based on the number of episodes on a TV show, though that was also short of what they wanted. But the writers did not get a strike recognition clause, which means that they are now contractually obligated once this is all done and signed off on by the members, uh, that they have to go back to work and that they won't be striking in solidarity with actors. So it seems like a, the first step in business as usual coming back to, to Hollywood. Yeah, Bill Maher, I'd like to come on your show now that I hope that he's coming back. But just to put it in the words of WGA, they say, what we have won in this contract, most particularly everything we've gained since May 2nd, is due to the willingness of this membership to exercise its power, to demonstrate its solidarity, to walk side by side, to endure the pain and uncertainty of the past 146 days. So this has been a long time coming. And they also added, it's the leverage generated by your strike in concert with the extraordinary support of our union siblings that finally brought companies back to the table to make a deal. Really important, one thing I didn't mention, when we first talked about the strike, we talked about how transparency was the most important sticking point. And although the details, again, aren't fully uh, available to us yet, uh, the new residual scheme contemplates bonuses based on consumption. So there's some sense here that the studios are going to have to release some data on who's watching a given show and tying some of the pay to that. So that's significant. And I think what happens now is that uh, this is going to go to, it's going to be voted on by leadership of the WGA today. And by all accounts, they'll approve it. It'll then go to members. It seems like they'll approve it. It'll take a few weeks before the writers are back. But obviously, the actors are still striking and they want an 11% bump in pay. So that's 11% versus the 6% that the writers asked for. So that's one reason why that strike could last longer. And again, this is a three-year deal. So we could be right back here sooner rather than later. But there are also other elements of the industry that are up for new contracts in the coming year. Uh, so next year, three more big contracts expire. So the SAG-AFTRA net code, which is reality shows, late night and soaps, uh, the crew union agreements, and then the Teamsters truck agreements 
are all up next year. So not only is this a short-term deal, three years, but there the actors are still out and there are other members of the industry who are set to go on strike potentially next year, or at least have their contracts up. And that's why I think this actors negotiation is going to be critical because if they agree to 11% for actors or anywhere near that, then they're signaling to the next round of contracts that they can ask for you know, double digit increases. And so that's why I think that there's, there may be more distance between the producers and the actors and more of a chilling there than for writers, but who knows? And one other major development that we want to call your attention to on the education front is coming out of North Carolina, where there's now going to be a universal education savings account for any family who wants to opt in, which is pretty major for the school choice battle. It's the second of its kind, and that would amount to somewhere between $3,200 to $7,500 per student. Yeah, this is a pretty big deal. And what's fascinating here is that Although the governor opposed it, he allowed the bill to go through because there was Medicaid expansion in it. But also that some of the, the biggest boosters of this, obviously, you know, generally speaking, conservatives and Republicans are uh, supportive of vouchers and school choice. But there were a few Democrats who crossed the aisle to, pass, to, to vote for this bill. And uh, one of the main proponents, if not the biggest voice for this, was a guy named Marcus Brandon, who's a former Democratic state representative, who framed this as a progressive issue. And, you know, I'd been long advocating that Democrats come to the table to craft this, these uh, ESA and voucher bills in responsible ways. And this seems like an improvement on other states. And, you know, notably, there are a lot of states here who've passed ESA laws recently. So North Carolina is the ninth state with universal school choice. Uh, Arizona, Florida, Iowa, Utah, and West Virginia now have ESA programs open to all students. Oklahoma has a universal tax credit program. Ohio has a universal voucher program and Indiana has an income ceiling for a voucher that's pretty high. So it's near universal. But what I like about this bill is it's universal. I like that it's tiered based on the income of students. I like that uh, the Department of Education has the ability to tie some standardized test to this so that you can gauge the quality of programs. And the state superintendent has to recommend a test for families for that. Uh, and I like the fact that the the dollar figures here are real and will actually be enough, it seems, for students to actually access the private market. So this this does seem like a bill that has the markings of a bipartisan agreement, even if only a few Democrats cross the aisle for it. Well, Ravi, we have a lot of contentious, hot-button social issues to delve into today. Um, the first being Ibram X. Kendi and news out of Boston University, where he was heading up the Center for Anti-Racist Research that was established in 2020 specifically for him, that the center is shrinking very considerably um, and there are mass layoffs across it. So there are a lot of conservatives who are kind of doing a victory lap on this front. But break it down for us, Ravi, what's happening up at BU? Yeah, so he, Kendi, after 2020, uh, raised something on the order of $55 million for the Center for Anti-Racist Research, which was launched in 2020. This was, you know, obviously on the heels of the Floyd protests. And it included a $25 million anonymous gift and $10 million from Jack Dorsey, interestingly. And the sort of recent reporting suggests that a lot of what the center set out to do, it had not accomplished. So, you know, major initiatives like a plan to develop degree programs in anti-racism didn't happen. Little original research has been produced. 
people who worked at the center were complaining about mismanagement and that the administrators who were getting these grants had no interest in actually seeing the work through it. There's a lot of criticisms of Kendi himself. Uh, and this really culminated last week when uh, more than half of its employees were laid off uh, and the center's budget was trimmed, although it seems like they have an endowment still. So some reporting suggests that the center, you know, though it raised $55 million, it has an endowment of $30 million, some of the reporting suggests, uh, with an additional $17.5 million in reserves. I'm not sure how to square those two pieces of information. But I think taking a step back, there this wouldn't be the first time that a nonprofit organization or something affiliated with a university failed. I don't think that's what's newsworthy. And Kendi himself you know, I, in his statement said, I want to live in a world where all leaders of new organizations are given time to make mistakes and learn to grow. I want to live in a world where all new organizations are given time to have growing pains and develop. I hear him. I've started some successful organizations that continue to this day, like Arena and Republic Schools. And, uh, and I've started some organizations even at the very same time that he did right after Floyd that no longer are doing programming. So a good example is this group called Second Chance Studios that I started with a couple of criminal justice reform activists after Floyd. We started a fellowship for people coming out of the prison system because we wanted to do something tangible for people coming out of prison uh, and getting them jobs. We did one cohort. We got everybody jobs. Uh, and then there was no more funding left. So there were people didn't want to fund it because it was, you know, in the, in the eyes of the philanthropic community, kind of an inef inefficient program because it was very resource intensive for each person. And so we paused that program until we could raise more money. So like, I don't want to throw stones in glass houses. Like people can start programs and sometimes they fail. And I think that's a part of the nonprofit world. Like it's a part of the for-profit world. But what I do think is interesting here is that Kendi's ideas aren't like, I think a lot of people are dancing on his grave or people like I know on the left, are just kind of ignoring the story. But I do think Ricky, this is an opportunity to revisit his ideas which I think are the, 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 in my opinion, the area where he should get the most scrutiny because he, he's an author. The idea that he started this center and didn't manage it well is not surprising to me at all. I mean, and Boston University is investigating this and I'm sure they'll find a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. But his ideas continue to exist. He has best-selling books, not only for adults, like How to Be Anti-Racist. He won the National Book Award. He has kids' books. He has teenager books. He has influence over the K to 12 system. And I think people, you know, who are gleeful about this should, should pause and say, all right, like do whatever celebration you have, whatever. But like the debate over anti-racism as a philosophy is still hot and we're still amidst it. Yeah. Although I would say that the defenders of it seem to be a whole lot more quiet than they were in 2020. Like, I, I mean, there are people in, in the kind of racial activist world for whom I have much more respect. I, I think that the my issue with him specifically is that I feel like there's almost like a, a prophet sort of position that he seems to put himself up as where, where these are like almost vague philosophical ideas as opposed to like a real tangible ideology. And you need to defer to Kendi to, to decide if someone is anti-racist enough and essentially like the the framework that he sets out is either there's no such thing as being not racist you're either racist or you're actively anti-racist so if you say that you're not racist you're racist essentially yeah it's like a it's a cousin of the, the robin d'angelo philosophy and and white fragility and how to be anti-racist are these books that around 2020 21 i 
could not run into a progressive who wasn't trying to shove this down my throat. And both have had tremendous influence in the K-12 system. Uh, let's go to Ibram Kendi talking about this. This is with Rabbi Josh Davidson, and this is Kendi on the difference between not racist and anti-racism. Well, I think the most fundamental difference is that to be anti-racist is to actually have the courage and the wherewithal to admit and acknowledge the times in which we're being racist. Uh, the term not racist is in many ways an historical term that connects with the fact that throughout history, people who were being racist typically self-identified as not racist. They typically identified their policies, their practices, their ideas as not racist. I've never seen anybody more guilty of the genetic fallacy as Ibram Kendi, meaning this idea that because something happened at some point, that all future versions of it uh, embody the worst version of it at any point in time. And so this is saying like, oh, we can't use the term nonviolent because sometimes people who are violent say they're nonviolent or we can't use the term victim because sometimes the perpetrators call themselves victim. I mean, there's no word in the English language that wasn't used at some point by somebody powerful who was doing the exact opposite of what the word meant, right? I mean, it's, it's really silly. And he does this, Ricky, on a lot of ideas, particularly standardized testing. He wrote this essay in 2016, Why the Achievement Gap is a Racist Idea. And essentially he argues that because of eugenicists, et cetera, and the fact that they use standardized tests for nefarious reasons, then uh, the achievement gap itself is a racist idea, even acknowledging differences in achievement between black and white students and standardized tests themselves because they were used to measure you know, differences among the races by actual racists, that even though because totally well-intentioned people today are using them to actually uh, try to help people, no matter what their race is, you know, get the support that they need, that that's somehow racist. I mean, these are the types of ideas that he's trafficking in. Yeah. And I mean, to be clear, I I want to steal, man, the the concept of like a lot of these these writers who popped up. I, I would put Robin D'Angelo in the category of people I don't have much patience for. But like Ta-Nehisi Coates is somebody who like I don't agree with a lot of what he says, but I think that they're actually mean. He is a meaningful, thought out and thought provoking body of work. But like to me, the Kendi world of like we are going to write a book about being an anti-racist baby is just a little bizarre because his worldview requires that that you search out and seek and and look to find racism in every crevice and if you're not doing that then you're somehow racist by being complacent and like for example anti-racist baby uses words to talk about racism maybe anti-racist baby should just be a baby before they're anti-racist or or inherently racialized at least in my view but I take exception to this sort of this sort of philosophy. But I also think that a lot of people, if you actually scratch the surface, do. And he has very, much fewer, like, very vehement supporters than he did in 2020. And, and I think this is really just a referendum on a moment in time where we were grappling with a pandemic, where we were grappling with the death of George Floyd, when we were grappling with legitimate racial issues in this country. And there was a rapid and perhaps not totally thought out instinct to throw money at problems. And, you know, I think we still are seeing the reverberations of like what actually happened with all the BLM donations and, and like 
was there accountability about where all this money was going? And this is an example of like, oh, let's just build a, an anti-racist research center, which BU decided to do as like a way to court Kendi because basically every single, at that moment in time, every single major university wanted to have him on on their staff as this sort of like person who was able to see through this world of anti-racism and racism. But one thing that I have to admit that, go ahead. One thing that bothers me about this is that in response to, to Floyd, people are throwing up these black squares, they're donating money to these organizations and everything seemed to be clustered, not exclusively, but dominantly clustered in the world of words and symbolism, right? So, so much of what uh, Kendi talks about is how do you talk about things? You need to acknowledge this. You need to acknowledge that white fragility is the same way. And meanwhile, there's actual work to be done out there, whether it's in our school system, our healthcare system, economically, et cetera. Um, I just, uh, this week I'm interviewing these authors of this book called The Injustice of Place. And they talk about places like the Mississippi Delta, which are as devastated as they've ever been on racial lines and also economic lines. And there's, there's actual tangible work to be done. And so many people in my life who, you know, were inspired, pushed, whatever in 2020 to go out there to these protests have disappeared. You know, they, they donated money, perhaps they threw up a black square and they're nowhere to be seen in this fight when there's real tangible work to be seen. And Kendi himself though, like, although he has been mostly in the world of ideas, he has been uh, a super influential voice in the education world. So like places like Teach for America have invited him to speak. And, you know, we talked about this Thomas Jefferson High School in Virginia, which had changed its practices. It was a magnet school and changed its practices uh, in a way that angered a lot of Asian American families because it diluted the percentage of Asian American families. Uh, the families in Fairfax, Virginia, fought to get a video of Kendi speaking to their school board uh, and school administration. They fought to get it released. And when it was released, they found out a couple of things. One is that they paid Kendi $20,000. This is a school system, right? This is the guy who cares about anti-racism, right? He's taking $20,000. I'm sure he's handsomely paid, by the way, by this uh, Boston University uh, Center and through his royalties. He somehow is charging $20,000 for a one-hour Zoom appearance. And this was in August 2020. And the Fairfax School spent an additional $44,000 on his books. And he Zoomed in. This is a one-hour Zoom meeting. And he, uh, this is before they made changes to the magnet school. And now from this video, we know a couple of things. On standardized testing, Kendi said that white and Asian American families, uh, parents are more likely to send their kids to test prep courses and tutors, which gives those kids an unfair advantage. And obviously we know what happened after this. It's not a straight causal line, but they wound up changing those practices. He, a questioner asked Kendi how he would handle admissions at Thomas Jefferson High School. He responded that he would start with the question, what is an intellectual? And his answer was that an intellectual is not based on how much you know, but rather your desire to learn. So basically he would measure your desire. I don't know how he'd measure your desire, but I guess like wanting to learn is what's important to him to get into an academic magnet school, which seems like a hard thing to measure. And by the way, I imagine we could find racist origins to measuring somebody's desire for anything, um, something that I guess goes unaddressed in this Q&A. But Ricky... I'll get off my soapbox just to say this guy's ideas are everywhere in education. We can call it critical race theory. We can call it something else. But that influence, you know, if you live in Fairfax County, for existence, and your kid goes to Thomas Jefferson High School, that legacy lives on because those practices have changed. 
Although to his own admission, he says it, quote, isn't like it was in 2020 when it was the popular thing to do in terms of like upholding this sort of viewpoint. So even he is admitting that I think it's on its its way out for sure. But I, I will admit right now that this is me kind of doing what I criticize conservatives for doing, taking a little bit of a victory lap. But sometimes it's it, admittedly amusing to watch very progressive movements start to eat its own tail. And one example of that is that one of Kendi's former employees spoke out and said, um, in addition to alleging that there was a lack of uh, transparency and culture of secrecy, that he was committing employment violence by laying these people off. I don't know what the hell employment I know. I, is. I don't even want to go there. As somebody who, who's laid off people in my life, I'm sure somebody could accuse me of employment violence. So I'm not going to judge him on that. when you have this, this like ultra progressive, like when you hire people who are so progressive, but then actually need to operate an anti-racist center or, or a nonprofit or just like a business in this world, you get this really interesting kind of feedback of what, what is employment violence? I'll let you off the hook on that one, but that's the, the hyperbole of this sort of like ultra progressive desire to ascribe violence to clearly nonviolent acts is I think a, really concerning slippery slope. Yeah, I would like to just like my sort of bookend to this is these these ideologies need to be replaced by some common ethic, right? Like a common sense of a shared destiny in this country and a sense of responsibility over the present effects of our history, right? And it includes race, it includes economics, et cetera. Like I went down South to start Nashville Prep in the neighborhood with the largest incarceration rate of black males because of our history and the present effects of that history. And what I want is, and and that was very much in keeping with the spirit of the times, right? Like there was this bipartisan conversation that included people like Barack Obama and Jeb Bush, no matter what people think about him, uh, and Lamar Alexander in Tennessee, and you know Chris Christie even in New Jersey like there were there was a bipartisan consensus that one of the most important things you could do in this world is give up your privilege for even a short period of time and you know some people gave up a couple of years to teach for America some people more like give up your privilege for a period of time to serve people who don't have the same privilege as you and that's one of the highest callings we can have as a society and i feel like although there are some people who still do that there's there's a cynicism around that kind of work and I want to rescue us from that cynicism. I'm not exactly sure why. And people like Kendi, I think the, the real tragedy isn't like how he spent his money at Boston University, but how he, I think, squandered the spotlight. He squandered the attention that he gathered with a lot of gobbledygook postmodern theories, just like Robin D'Angelo did at a time when if we got tangible and actually talked about real results for children instead of you know, saying that, you know, focusing on results and tests and things like that to measure results is racist. Like instead of being like, hey, let's actually move the dial for kids. I just think a lot of good would have happened. Yeah. And I think that a lot of my issue, similarly with the the term anti-racist, is that so much of it is based in rhetoric and performance. And to your point, not actually results. All right, Ricky. I've been waiting to ask you about this. Russell Brand has been accused by four women of rape, sexual assault, and related abuses. One of the women was 16 years old. It was in Britain, which Brand's uh, you know supporters have been 
quick to note that the legal age of consent is 16 in the UK, but obviously sexual assault, if you know, is the allegation which would be illegal in any place. Uh, I a lot of this debate has been centered around the decision of YouTube, who suspended brands' ability to monetize his online videos. I'm curious. I was thinking about this. I, I was curious to see where you'd come down on this. Whether YouTube, you think it was a proper thing to do? Yeah. To be to just um, clarify, there are four women coming forward. One of them has specifically accused him of rape and the others of um, sexual assault. And the one who was 16 alleges that that he was grooming her um, despite being over the age of consent and said that he was sending cars to pick her up from effectively her high school and called her the child. So to be clear, all these allegations are really disturbing and and totally unsavory. Um and they were published in the Sunday Times in the Times of London. And then there was also a Channel 4 TV documentary that all dropped at the same time. So it was um, pretty earth shattering. Yeah. So there's there's multiple consequences of this for Brand. Um, he chose to postpone his own tour. He was dropped by his talent agency. He paused the publication of an upcoming book. Um, as you mentioned, he was demonetized on YouTube and his content was removed from the BBC. And that's all happened like virtually instantaneously. So I would say, I, I mean, it's within YouTube's rights to demonetize him. He's not been um, convicted of anything. And I think that that we should still err on the side of uh, presumption of innocence, even if it's never been a secret that this guy was pretty out there for a long time and was was heavily addicted to drugs and was a self-professed very promiscuous um, in this kind of time period. Um, he does say that that everything had been consensual, um, and he ap- he quote absolutely refutes the allegations. But you know, I mean, it's it's YouTube's right. I wouldn't have made that decision. I think that maybe you have another conversation ap- after there's been a a criminal investigation or any actual charges, but. Even if this turns out to be true, it's not a, it's about the presumption of innocence. And I'm not sure what the precedent is set if you if you start demonetizing people based on an allegation or a set of allegations alone. Yeah, I think there's this woman, Grace Blakely, who put it on Twitter. I think I think this is where I am on this, which is she said, quote, I'm so sick of people taking liberal rights that were created to protect against the despotism of the state and projecting them onto every area of social life. The state has to presume your innocence. The average person does not. And she was responding to somebody on Twitter who was talking about the presumption of innocence in relation to YouTube. Obviously, a lot of people connecting this to Brand's ideas and saying that he's being punished for his ideas. I've seen absolutely no evidence that that's true, that these women are motivated in any way by trying to silence his ideas. I think you. I'm with you that YouTube has the right to do this. They, they're free, they have free speech rights too. Brand could take this to Rumble or wherever else. Uh, I think, uh, obviously, you'd want to know that they're consistent on that, which I haven't seen a thorough reporting to see that whether they're consistent on it. And obviously, the question of what severity of accusations uh, warrants YouTube triggering demonetization or not, because, you know, there could be a video like, like let's say they took down a video of uh, Brett Kavanaugh, right, online. Mm-hmm. Would that be okay? What if they took down a video of Aziz Ansari? Would that be okay? I think Aziz, I would be like, that's absurd. But in this case, four women, the severity of allegations, I'm like, 
would I want Russell Brand on my platform? I probably wouldn't. I would also want to know just like how consistent they're being. I think as soon as you ask that question, though, would I want this person on my platform? Then you start taking the role of a publisher, which is what Section 230 protects these platforms from actually having to do. And you start implicitly endorsing people. If it's if it's no longer a criminal thing, like if 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 you're as the CEO of YouTube going to say, do I want this person on the on my platform? Well, what about someone who's a smaller name who might be accused of far worse things or even convicted? Like, do we need to start rooting all of them out to stay consistent? Or are you then implicitly validating all of all of their positions or their presence on your platform? Like, I think the the slippery slope of that sort of choice because at this point it is a choice on on YouTube's behalf. These are unnamed women who I mean I I trust the journalistic integrity of the publications who interviewed them, but YouTube didn't interview them or do their own internal investigation and I th- I think the the precedent that this sets is really concerning because just an accusation can dry up someone's livelihood. I mean, Russell Brand's probably not a great example because I'm I'm sure that he has a bank account that's plenty full because of his context as a celebrity before. But for somebody who could just be like a scrappy a public intellectual who's who's making the paying their bills with with monetization from YouTube, this could be earth shattering. It, it could also prevent people from from sharing their views or going down that direction in the first place, which I think is hugely concerning. Yeah. I mean, that's a good point on whether it's a publisher or not. I think it all depends on the rationale given, right? Like one rationale could be, hey, we don't have time to sift through all of his videos and we know he's going to take to YouTube or he already has taken to YouTube to imply that these people are lying, right? So demonetize that video. Yeah, I mean, these are all explanations that lawyers could give, YouTube could give, et cetera. They could also like have a blanket policy against people who are accused of sexual assault, period. I'm not sure they have then, that policy. But that's a terrible policy. That's like the most ridiculous policy ever. Anyone could just go around accusing people and getting them deplatformed. I mean, that's a really dangerous slippery slope, in my opinion. I'm giving them too much credit, but it could be, hey, like where the accusation is coming from matters, right? Like, because, you know, Harvey Weinstein for a second was just accused of sexual assault, right? But then he was he was actually indicted. But if in that interim period, he was taking off of HBO or YouTube, et cetera, I would be like, yeah, that seems sensible, right? But here's let, let's hear from the YouTube CEO himself when he was asked about this. This was the explanation he gave. We have a, a creator responsibility guidelines uh, policy where if creators have... Uh, off-platform behavior or there's off-platform news that could be damaging to the broader creator ecosystem, you can be suspended from our monetization program. Uh, It's impacted a number of uh, creators and personalities on the platform uh, in the past, and that's what played out in this particular case around the serious allegation. It's an accusation. It's not a police charge. It's not a, a legal decision. How do you decide when to step in? before the whole due process has happened? We endeavor to apply those rules uh, equally across our entire creator ecosystem, not playing favorites, having them apply to the content, the behavior, as opposed to who the person is. Not very specific. I think bottom line on this one is, I don't love the sort of rushing to brand's defense and the connecting this to conspiracy theories, et cetera, because that, you know, absent evidence, what people are saying is that these women made this up. 
that's the kind of thing that I think if you're going to say, you need to bring your evidence. Uh, of course, he's given the presumption of innocence in court. He is not given the presumption of innocence in the public square. I think YouTube should explain what their policy is. At the same time, his agent, these other people who are dropping him, et cetera, I don't see any problem with that. Well, I'll tell you what I think is far scarier than the YouTube situation is one other piece of news that came out of the parliament in the UK. The chair of the House of Commons' media committee wrote a letter to the CEO of Rumble saying that they were, quote, concerned that he might profit off of that platform going forward and said, we would like to know what Rumble is doing to ensure that creators are not able to use the platform to undermine the welfare of victims of inappropriate and potentially illegal behavior. And the CEO of, which potentially is a really important (laughs) nuance there, The CEO of Rumble called it an extremely disturbing letter and said, like, absolutely, we're not deplatforming him. But that YouTube is one thing because YouTube saying this is our own policy and we just want to get rid of him or whatever or demonetize him. Fine. That's the private actor doing that. The idea of the government stepping in for potentially illegal behavior, which I'm not making any qualifications of these sets of allegations, but the idea that an, someone who has not been charged, who has not been convicted of anything, would have a government entity write a letter to their effectively their employer, if you think about the way the way that this monetization system works, um, to say like we're concerned that, and we'd like to know how you're going to make sure that he doesn't profit any longer is frightening for the state of free speech and something that I think uh, we in America with more robust First Amendment and free speech protections should uh, look at as a dystopian potential because I find that that governmental overstep to be far more disturbing than the YouTube situation. Well, I think the context here is fascinating because I actually think like the biggest scandal involving the UK and free speech is the law on the books that actually protects brand here because they have a different First Amendment culture and law than we do. Um, The responsibility is on the party taken to court, uh, not the subject of allegations to prove that a story is substantially true on the balance of probabilities, while the defenses include the story was in the public interest or honestly held opinion backed up by facts. And basically... The short version of it is in the United States, you're protected uh, when you make uh, allegations in good faith and it's on the responsibility of people accused to prove that you acted out of malice or in a a reckless disregard for the truth. In the UK, the presumption is flipped the other way and people like Brand can sue their accusers for reputational damage unless those people can prove their allegations with a much higher degree of fact and and background than in the United States. So it's a much riskier proposition in the UK to report on these things, which is why um, there's a lot of speculation as to why these reports took as long as they they did it, in part because people like Brand can sue in sue both the paper and the person there. So I I don't see those laws changing anytime soon, but I do it does make me happy that we live in the United States where people's First Amendment rights are protected, but with limits. You can't just maliciously make up things about people, especially famous people. Yeah. And also just to be clear, there's some really shitty free speech and internet speech laws on the books in the UK. Like they have something called non 
crime hate incidents and people have literally been arrested for speech that would be completely protected here in America, including one guy who got fined for a video in which his girlfriend's pug does a Nazi salute. So that apparently is illegal in the UK. But anyways, I'll leave you with that. (laughs) Well, one last story from my, my childhood mall, the Short Hills Mall. Um, there was great mall, a, by the way. it is, I think it's probably like the only great mall left. There's a video that came out of the short Hills mall with a pretty viral Karen moment in it. Um, in which a woman is seen lashing at the, at somebody who's recording her, who is a, a black woman. And, um, as soon as the, the woman starts defending herself and saying like, Hey, you're coming at me. Um, the woman g- ends up on the ground crying and the the recorder says, oh, Karen's having a breakdown. And this video was um, pretty unflattering of the woman who is uh, being recorded. And a YouTuber happened to be the person that was accosted by this woman and released the video in multiple installments, started a GoFundMe in which she made uh, more than $100,000 and um, said that essentially she wanted to record and release this footage because according to her lawyer, quote, she knew that in Milburn, New Jersey, she would not be believed. I'm not sure what they're saying about my hometown area, but okay. And the context in the time since this happened is that there's a much more complex story behind the woman who is being recorded. Um, She's actually mentally disabled. She lives in a complex for disabled people, and she has a, a slew of psychological conditions. And apparently she, the breakdown and crying was a result of those conditions and also her, her panicking about the potential that she might lose her housing in that complex if this video got out. And so now we have the woman who recorded this suing the woman who has the meltdown and Victoria's Secret where this took place for not adequately protecting her and the mall itself for security issues. And then also the woman who is the Karen who is suing the woman who recorded her. And so it's a whole mess. But the point being, there was a a rush to laugh at this woman. There were more details and context that the New York Times did a a great deep dive on. And um, perhaps it should make us think twice a little bit before we jump to dunk on, on people who get caught in unflattering moments on camera. Yeah, I think this is like, in many ways, it's related to the Kendi story, right? If all you see is race, then sometimes you miss critical context, right? And this is true of the woman in Victoria's Secret who filmed this, but more importantly for her audience, right? There's no other explanation other than this is a white woman and a black woman, right? In a world where we're essentializing race, that's the only thing that could be going on here. Not that this is a woman who is afraid of losing her job. Not that this is a woman who has a developmental disability, Right, which we all learned later on, right? And we learned it from social workers who worked with her who were appalled by what happened here, right? And and what this woman who was videoing this did was she the first video she called Karen Goes Crazy Part One. It was viewed 2.6 million times on YouTube, right? Her GoFundMe campaign was called Help Me Defend Myself Against Karen. That's the one that made over a hundred thousand dollars. So you're monetizing this situation, right? You're the you're the so-called victim here, right? Uh, of this woman who has lost her composure in front of you, right? Uncomfortable situation, terrible, right? But 
do you need $100,000 for that? Do we need 2.6 million people, you know, looking at this person uh, unraveling before you, before you even ask what's going on? Like, did you ask that woman if she's okay? Like, have you found out like whether this person's having a breakdown in, in some ways unrelated to anything to you? Like just general people stuff that's totally missing from this. Like, yes, I, like, I, I totally get it. Like there are real Karens out there, a term I don't really love. There are people out there who are racist. I've seen them. I've had people be racist to me, but racism doesn't explain everything in society. And being a racially disadvantaged person doesn't mean you're the only disadvantaged person, right? There are other forms of disadvantage. And, you know, it seems like this woman who is filmed falls squarely within that category. Yeah. And to, I mean, to be fair to the woman who recorded it, there she didn't know that there was a psychological issue when this interaction was taking place. And it's not her responsibility to have everyone's medical records around her. And, you know, the woman did like kind of lunge towards her. I don't think in any legitimately threatening manner, but in a way that would make any normal person uncomfortable and be like, what the hell is wrong with you for sure. But the, I think the, the ongoing campaign to release this in multiple installments to clearly publicly shame was the, the place where this went awry and the nuance. And I mean, even watching the video, it's, it's pretty clear that this is not like a, a fully well person. Like it's, it's, I mean, the Central Park Karen video and stuff, like I think that there's important context surrounding it. But like you can tell that the woman in the video is is thinking clearly and acting rationally. And this one, I don't think that, or not acting rationally, but acting with, like you can see her mindset and you can you can see her train of thought. This is a different situation for sure. It seems like a a highly elevated emotional state that you would not expect from from an adult, to be completely honest, which is why this context is very important. It makes sense. But I think that this is just like one of, sadly, a bunch of different examples of these like out of context viral moments of people's lives, which, you know, like maybe, maybe let's say that this had happened and there wasn't a camera or, and there was just people testifying or she was totally mentally fine and she actually did lunge at this woman. Like she might have a day at court and they might, they might, someone might press charges but this is like the court of public condemnation that I think is often a slippery slope. And there was another Karen incident recently that turned out to be pretty similar, actually, a city bike Karen, which I think was earlier this year. The roughly two minute video starts with a white woman wearing hospital scrubs, straddling a city bike, screaming for help, even though she doesn't appear to be in danger. Please help me. This is not your bike, repeats the young black man standing next to her who says he just rented that city bike. His friends standing around him. This is my bike, it's on my account. Please get off While the video doesn't show the young man touching her, it does show her remove her hospital badge, then grab the young man's phone. Why you took his phone? The woman then tells him he's hurting her fetus. I'm not touching you. When a man, also in scrubs, inquires what's wrong, the woman all of a sudden appears to begin sobbing. When the man tells the woman to choose another bike, she calmly removes herself. Another young man recording the video can be heard saying, Why you stop crying? Not a, not a tear came down, miss. This video got 40 million views. Um, the woman was doxxed and put on leave. Ben Crump uh, accused her of endangering the men that were trying to get the bike back and weaponizing her tears. But after this whole meltdown and this woman getting like being put on leave, she's pregnant. 
Um, it turns out that she was actually the person who rented the bike and she was being like wrongly accosted by the young men that are there. I mean, her reaction might've been a little hyperbolic, but this rush to say that like this 30 second clip or this clip that starts in the middle of an interaction is a hundred percent a representation of this person and their, and their entire character, I think is a really dangerous one and a precedent that is not awesome. I mean, Nick Sandman would be another example of um, the kid with the MAGA hat uh, that was grinning in front of a Native American um, outside of the Supreme Court, I think. Was that the Supreme Court? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these context is important and like, yeah, you can still dislike these people and their reactions, but I think this is a, a good moment to say, maybe we shouldn't just like ruin people's lives and dox them and take their jobs or potentially their apartments because they had a a bad moment that any of us would be embarrassed to have. Yeah, I totally agree. It's like, who's giving money to this GoFundMe? Who's clicking like on this video? Like the, the sort of, the guilt is kind of shared and it, it really says more about you than the people on the video. It's like, what are you trying to get out of this interaction, right? Like, what is it, what is it that you're cheering on, right? Why are you even looking at this video, right? Go out into your community you know, this gets to the anti-racism thing. Like what's going on in your community? How can you bring more kindness on a daily basis? Are you always the, the kindest version of yourself and the most thoughtful person in your life? How much do you know about the people around you that might unravel, you know? Are you really doing the work? Chances are you're probably not if you're sitting there sending money on a GoFundMe that says, help me defend myself against Karen. I could think of some better uses of that money. Doing the work, Ravi. You sound like Ibram X. Kendi. Well, in contrast to him, doing the work is the work for me. Work is work. Like work isn't sitting around and analyzing people's words, you know? And in this case, cheering somebody on because of a 30-second clip. I'm sorry. It just doesn't do it for me. Yeah. This is also um, something that I think is going to become more and more of a, like what the, the views that we're expressing, I think will be more commonly held in the near future, considering that. We're about to have a world in which major world leaders, all corporate leaders, all uh, public figures have had iPhones since they were 10 and have been recording each other forever. And everyone's going to have embarrassing stuff. Like every single young person who grows up with a smartphone has a bad moment or an unflattering text or something that they would wish that they would never have said, which would have just withered on the vine of human memory, any other generation, but today could come back to really haunt them. And I think that there's inevitably going to be a ceasefire on this stuff because everyone is so exposed. And especially when when you're growing up with this technology and and the ability to record any moment that you might uh, be like a bystander to. I think that the days are numbered for this sort of judge, jury, and executioner takedown of people. Yeah. Yeah, $100,000 is just crazy. That's 10 times what the state of Mississippi spends per kid in the school system. Well, it's just a drop in the bucket in the anti-racist fight. So maybe she should send it over to Ibram X. Kendi to pay his bills. No, I, no more Kendi jokes. I feel like I'm bad karma. As a nonprofit leader, I feel like I'm gonna, I've got bad karma for this Kendi talk. All right. 
Thank you everybody for listening. Uh, re- remember to rate, review, and subscribe. Those ratings really help. Give us those five stars and a nice review. Uh, remember to send in voicemails, 321-200-0570. That's 321-200-0570. We will be back on Thursday. Thank you, everybody.